0: Hello and welcome to the Ridgeway Security Hour brought to you by the Matthew B. Ridgeway Center for International Security Studies and the Graduate School for Public and International Affairs at the University of Pittsburgh. I'm your host Kira Sanderson. Let me in- introduce our panel for today. We have Tommy Crohn, Shannon Keys, and Kayla Martin. Thank you all for being here. I look forward to today's discussion. Happy to be here. Thank you. Good to be here. All right, so our first topic for today is the death of Baghdadi. So just before we get into any questions, can we just talk about our initial reactions when we saw that on the news, whether it came across our cell phone or whatnot?
1: So the first thing that really popped into my head was I thought immediately of when Osama bin Laden was killed. And I started to try to draw comparisons whether decapitation would be the best uh, policy, counterterrorism policy for the Islamic State, and it's really hard to determine. It depends on how much of a leader and how operationally involved Baghdadi was. Um, also it's called a personality which is um, often uh, disputed, but for me I think it's a it's a big event for the Trump administration. And given all the um, impeachment inquiries that are happening right now, um, I think it's something that, as far as domestic politics goes, it's something that he can divert attention away from himself, at least for a brief time.
2: It's certainly a win for the Trump administration, and I know that um, when Osama bin Laden was also Um, reports of his death uh, hit the news. Uh, That was also something that Obama used to kind of boost his ratings as well. So it makes sense that Trump would definitely jump on that and use it to distract uh, from all the turmoil of his domestic policies.
3: I think that while it's like objectively a success for the Trump administration, also it's like kind of counterproductive because he is pulling troops out of Syria. And we have seen that ISIS members have escaped um, from jail cells and just they're taking like in the process of retaking um land and i think that like it it kind of we don't i don't know how much of a long-term effect the um killing of uh, baghdadi would be because of his uh pull out of ministries so shannon yeah. you
0: just mentioned that which is obviously ironic that this was all unfolding since i know we all have taken intelligence courses at some point in Gizpia. Um, can we just like talk about the irony of it all, and maybe how the intelligence community was feeling when they had this raid planned, and then President Trump was removing troops? If anyone wants to touch on that, or even you, more Shannon.
3: I think uh-huh. even like whenever they were removing troops, then we're also removing um, our ability to gather intelligence within that area. So I think that in a way that you obviously he's had the certain rhetoric towards the intelligence community, it just kind of like added towards that. But then, you know, we did catch al-Baghdadi. So I kind of think it was like a win for them. But also, I don't know how that's that's going to affect um, Trump's rhetoric, like future rhetoric with them.
1: I think definitely when it comes to a lot of the rhetoric, when he's, you know, going after the CIA, being, you know, involved in the deep state and all these conspiracy theories, um, I mean, it's not in the interest if the CIA is a deep state to, you know, hold this intelligence and conduct a successful raid and killing of Baghdadi, because that's clearly in favor of Trump's approval ratings. So, I mean, this kind of um, squashes a little bit of that whole conspiracy theory.
3: And Trump, um, I think, like I, I think the all Baghdadi uh, kind of raid happened despite everything that Trump has done. Like, obviously it's, a, it's great for his administration, but like him personally, he's like, you know, we've done this. And it's like, well, everything that you've tried to do has been counterproductive of that. Like it's been in de- like, despite of that, this happened in despite of your policies and your rhetoric and like what you want to do. You want to pull out Syrian troops or American troops from Syria. You want to pull out, um, you know, all of this, like our intelligence gathering operations there. Um, and the rhetoric towards the intelligence community that's going to, like, lower morale, um, this happened despite everything you're doing. So, he's doing So, President
0: Trump obviously made remarks on national television about this and gave away certain details, explanations, and whatnot. Um, Do we think certain things were too sensitive, or how, like, the intelligence community maybe reacted that he gave explicit details or not, or even you know, the photo of the dog that he posted that he declassified. So any thoughts on that?
1: Um, I'm not completely certain as far as, like, declassified information or classified information that he, um, I guess, displayed to the media. But I felt that his whole speech could be counterproductive to counterterrorism efforts, especially when we look specifically into lone wolf actors. When he was, um, you know, characterizing Baghdadi, as uh, basically a coward that was hiding with his children and sobbing before his death, um, I think this could kind of play into the revenge factor of a lot of lone wolves out there. So, um, you know, from a global jihadist perspective, uh, this could, you know, be a detriment to counterterrorism um, yeah, policies. But yeah, that's generally my take on his speech.
0: All right, so moving to the same topic, but different question. So how does his death affect the future of the Islamic State?
3: I think that it's, I mean, yeah, it's definitely a significant blow, but I feel like um, there's still a lot of ISIS fighters who weren't particularly, like, they weren't, like, super loyal to Baghdadi more uh, than, you know, they're more loyal to ISIS in general and other, that we have so many foreign fighters within ISIS that I think that, I mean, yeah, decapitation is definitely... A win, but this is definitely doesn't um cut out the um threat of the Islamic State. Just as we've seen with Al Qaeda, Al Qaeda is still a threat, not as big of a one, but it still exists. Um, despite um, the killing of Osama bin Laden.
1: You know, from an operational perspective, this won't be a huge hit for the Islamic State in the far future. In the near future, I think a lot of um. You know, a lot of their leadership outside of Baghdadi uh, might feel a bit of insecurity and they might hunker down at least for a short time. But ultimately, um, the underlying factors of terrorism in Syria still exist um, when it comes to lack of economic opportunities, sectarian divisions coupled with that. Ultimately, um, this political political and social situation in Syria um, ultimately will permeate to another group. Whether it will be the same structure as the Islamic State or not, um, it's uncertain, but ultimately they're still going to exist in the far future, in my opinion.
2: I think timing is a very important um, thing to recognize when it comes to the killing of Baghdadi. because I think if it happened a few years ago, this would be a much more significant blow than it is now. At this point, ISIS has devolved significantly. They've lost their territory, Um, They're fairly decentralized at this point. So losing leadership just doesn't have the impact that people like Trump would have us believe. Um, And the the fact of the matter is these are groups that have continual changes of leadership and they always have a second in command ready to take the helm. And really removing Baghdadi um, at this point isn't going to necessarily remove ISIS. Um, The threat will continue. It will just evolve in different ways.
0: Great, thank you for all of your input on that. And then, I know Shannon mentioned before, um, which leads into our next topic, that President Trump withdrew troops from Syria, which, like I said, leads into this topic of Turkey and the Kurds. So, with that being said, thoughts on you know why President Trump did this? Like, what does the U.S. have to gain here? Um, Free range, go ahead. So, I
1: mean, as a lot of policy with uh, President Trump, has been, um, I guess, made the argument is that uh, it's economically beneficial for the United States that we are bearing too much of the cost um, and that we should not be in these territories or these conflict zones. However, that's not very indicative of relationships with other international actors, and especially if our strategy is to counterterrorism, um, we need these... Uh, we need this cooperation between our allies to be as strong as it has ever been. So,
0: any other thoughts on that? Or don't worry, I have other questions too. <laughs> so, how much goodwill has the US destroyed with the Kurds and other allies
2: by making this decision? Well, I think a lot. Potentially <laughs> all of <the way. laughs> uh, I don't really know how the US has come out ahead in, in this decision whatsoever. Um, the Kurds were our closest fighting ally in the region, the most effective fighting force in that region um, and pulling out when when things get harder because we just decided we're just done is never a good policy option whatsoever.
3: And even worse too, um, after he said he was pulling out, he's like, well, we'll leave a few um, to protect oil and I think we should take some oil with us and I think that just kind of leaves the Kurds with a feeling of like we're I mean it's just self-interest it's just like our own like you know small needs such as oil
1: yeah and I think as um you know I guess the international system is moving away from you know United States as a hegemonic power um to a more like polycentric system as the United States pulls out of these territories and reneges on our deals that, al- that void is ultimately going to get filled by um, other main actors like China, or in this case, Russia. So, um, as we'll probably talk about later on, uh, this is ultimately a win for Russia because they have gained an influence within the Middle East.
0: And just to go off of that, since we're on the topic, the next question that I had was who wins more here? Aside Turkey, Iran... Or Russia, so if, we wanna, if you want to. I think <laughs> all of them. <laughs> uh, yeah. Which <Yeah>. is. <laughs> um, I would yeah. say, I mean,
3: to speak specifically on Assad, um, you know, the Kurds weren't necessarily like obviously on his side, but like, who else did they turn to? It's either him or mass, just, you know, they're gone, mass extinction for them. Um, so I think that he kind of has them kind of. He's like, well, I'm your only really hope, so basically I can kind of use you as I want you to.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting looking at Iran, um, you know, gaining that supply line to uh, their Lebanese counterparts in Hezbollah. Um, I think a lot of times we overlook the Shia militancy within the region, look at the Sunni militancy. And often, um, you know, these groups that are sponsored by Iran are um, even more destabilizing to the region than uh, some of the Sunni groups.
2: I think that, I mean, absolutely all four groups have achieved a victory in this, Um, but I really do think that Turkey's come out ahead out of all of them, uh, simply because Assad wasn't really focusing on the Kurds. He's been focusing on just strengthening his hold on his own country, Um, and he's kind of just left the Kurds on the back burner for now, especially since Turkey is essentially dealing uh, with the problem for him. I think that... um, Erdogan essentially has a, a two-part victory in this, um, this so-called state zone that he's trying to establish, which is anything but. Um, but I, I think that um, Erdogan essentially achieves a victory in this um, because I know his, uh, his popularity ratings have been declining, and this will definitely give him a boost, in that it solves two of his problems. It takes care of a lot of the refugees in Turkey, which has been causing a lot of issues. People obviously are not thrilled with having, I think it's between 2 to 4 million refugees right now. Um, in the country. Um, So, if he puts them all back in Syria, that's one problem neatly solved, supposedly. And the other problem is that it essentially will uh, take away from the homogenous Kurdish area by putting a whole bunch of of Syrian Arabs in the um, in that particular region. And that kind of weakens uh, groups like the PKK's argument for an autonomous Kurdish state. Um, If it's a region that's mixed with a bunch of Syrian Arabs, then that argument essentially weakens. Um, but on top of that, I mean, he also gets to take territory away from the Kurds, which at this point for him is just gravy. So I think Erdogan absolutely won when it came to this.
0: Which goes into, like, the one question that I'm curious, your perspective is, is there any salvaging for this foreign policy fiasco?
1: I, I'm <laughs> not, not too certain on that. I mean, uh, damage, president... <laughs> again, another... I guess bad part of President Trump's speech was that uh, he kind of showed that the United States was only interested in economic, like for economic reasons in the Middle East and stating that we leave a small force to cover oil fields and, again, bragging about our ability to extract oil from the region. Um, So, I mean... (laughs) That's, I don't, I, don't, I, I don't see how we can, you know, go back from uh, us pulling out from the Kurdish forces within Syria, but I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I highly doubt it.
2: <laughs> no, I agree completely. And I know that during, um, thinking even farther ahead, I know during the last uh, democratic debate, um, they asked. What, what are you going to uh-huh. do about this? And the problem is no one can actually say, well, we'll, we'll put troops back in Syria. Yeah. Like, that's not really an option. And yet, without having troops in Syria, what can we do? Um, so this is really, really, um, we, we really are out of options. Um, and it's, yeah, it just a terrible policy all around.
1: I think overall, I mean, from the Bush and partially the Obama presidency, you know, the overall their policy was looking at, um, you know, democratizing the Middle East, uh, coming up with democracies, very idealist uh, policy agenda. And Trump has moved far from that and mostly a profit based policy um, based only on US interest. And ultimately, that's not going to lead to long-term stability in the Middle East. Um, they still have their underlying political and social problems, and the turmoil will begin or continue. Um, so this is just a furtherance of. US policy failures in the region.
3: Yeah, I think policy, I mean obviously having a middle ground is like hard. Um, but between um, his policy of you know less U.S. intervention in the Middle East um, and um well, I do have something that I know I brought up
0: before, um, which obviously some people may not know. Tommy, myself, and Shannon are both are all SIS majors, and Kayla is a human security major. So, any other thoughts from a human security perspective, Kayla or? A, a lot of a lot? <laughs> I'm ready <laughs> just to just a few. You bring a different perspective. Um, in. Uh, well, this
2: is um, the whole situation in Syria is obviously a humanitarian disaster, um, and there are currently two really big areas of issue. Um, one of them is, of course, the area um, the I think it's called the the Democratic Federation for northern Syria. It's that Kurdish held area, also known as Rojava. Um, that's a huge issue because uh, there have been a lot of concerns about potential ethnic cleansing. Um, Turkey again is absolutely determined to fight the Kurds at whatever cost. Um, they erroneously um, affiliate the Turkish group, or the Kurdish groups like the uh, SFD, or the SDF with the PKK, which is a terrorist organization. The SDF is not. Um, but regardless, they are pretty determined to, uh, to advance. Uh, There's already been, I think, over 200 deaths. They're talking about over 300,000 people being displaced, and Syria already has enough internally displaced people. Um, But on top of the uh, Turkish incursion in the northwest corner, in the northeast uh, corner, there's also the province of Idlib, which has at this point kind of been forgotten because all of our attention is being shifted to the other corner. But that corner is still a huge humanitarian um, issue, Uh, The UN has labeled it as it could potentially be the greatest humanitarian catastrophe of the 21st century, Uh, because right now we have civilians mixed in with Syrian rebels, mixed in with terrorists, and Assad is absolutely determined to just wipe the whole thing out, and um, they're essentially cornered in some journalists called it a kill box. Um, There's no escape. Jordan's borders are closed, and they can't leave, Um, and this results in a whole lot of problems, whether getting more humanitarian aid, or just trying to avoid um, the different airstrikes um, and are totally um, its It doesn't look good. And especially now that Assad has such complete control, especially with Russia, um, there aren't groups that care about humanitarian problems in the region anymore. Um, and if human rights aren't a priority for these groups, then these people's safety is absolutely not a priority for anyone um, currently active in the region. And that is a huge concern for us.
1: And also, I mean, just from what you were saying, the aggressive action against the Syrian Kurds makes me think about how this might play into more aggression towards other Kurdish populations in other countries. Um, I know the Iraqi Kurds had a failed referendum in 2017. um, And I just wonder, I mean, there's Kurdish populations in Iraq, Iran, Turkey, and Syria, how other countries and other Kurdish populations could be um, hurt more by this
2: absolutely yeah Yeah, that's definitely a growing threat Um, and that's a lot of that's something that we're unfortunately gonna have to just keep an eye on because um, every country deals with its Kurdish population in very different ways Um, obviously I think right now Iraq is probably um, one of the better regions for them which again is this is creating a refugee crisis in Iraq which they already have a problem with this But they have uh, several, I think they have, it's several, like, hundred thousand have already tried to cross the border into Iraq to escape. Um, And Iraq simply can't handle that kind of influx of people. Um, But again, where are they going to go? Um, All of their options are being closed off, and that's, um, it's just going to continue to exacerbate the problem.
0: All right, well, I want to thank all of you for your input on today's topics, and we look forward to having you guys again. And next up is our guest speaker, Steve Mancini, but we will take a break for now. So now it is time in our show to introduce our guest, Steve Mancini. Steve is the former CTO at NCFTA. Currently, he's an adjunct professor at RMU in Pitt and also works in the public sector. Thanks for being here today, Steve.
4: Thank you for having me.
0: So let's start off with you first telling us about yourself.
4: Sure. Um, well, as you stated, I am currently an adjunct professor at uh, University of Pitt as well as uh, Robert Morris University, uh, both located here in Pittsburgh. Uh, I am former uh, CTO at NCFTA where I spent a little over five years and I have roughly uh, 20 plus years of uh, public service to include uh, time in the military.
0: So you've held various roles in both public and private sector. Can you please tell us more about private and public partnerships in the world of cybersecurity?
4: Sure. Um, and I'll kind of give you a preface that with, uh, you know, my current role being public sector and previous roles being private sector. Uh, it's given me an opportunity to work with different entities, both public and private sector, in both capacities. So, for example, uh, previously when I was at NCFTA, um, our, our mission, and it still is the mission of NCFTA, was to bring public and private sector together to share different threat intelligence, uh, different in, uh, information uh, indicators, etc. Uh, with the idea that you could, you could bring these little pieces of disparate information and kind of get a, a, a bigger picture of what is going on. Having transitioned back to uh, public sector, I can tell you that that kind of information sharing is invaluable because I think there is a misnomer that a lot of people think that the government knows everything that's going on. The government really depends on the private sector to tell it what is happening, both from a fraud perspective you know, or from like, a traditional you know, breach or you know, technical perspective. Like, the government's not watching all of the, the, the private sector's infrastructure. So you absolutely cannot solve the problem of the various threats without having public and private sector cooperation.
0: So leading on to our next question from that is, what is the greatest cybersecurity concern today, would you say?
4: Uh, so something I've talked about both you know, in my former role and you know, obviously, here as a, as a professor at Pitt and RMU, is I I continue to kind of beat the two drums. One is the fact that we continue to plug everything in. We we are simply internet enabling everything. And despite all of the challenges, you know, despite all of the breaches, instead of us, you know, saying, hey, maybe we should slow down. Hey, do we really need our TVs, refrigerators, you know, alarm systems, you know, watches, everything enabled? Maybe, maybe we should slow down and, and kind of implement some kind of uh, basic security that says, "Look, you can't plug in unless you have X, Y, Z. With that being said, best practices for security have been around for 20, 30 years. I, re- I remember back in the 90s, you know, when when, when breaches were coming far more commonplace, um, you know, saying simple things like password protection, you know, perimeter security, defense in depth concepts, you know, those things have been around, but yet in the year 2019, we're still not doing what we have known to do. So then the question becomes: Well, why not? Are we becoming numb to badness, which is which is absolutely a bad place to be? Is there still an issue, you know, with education and awareness? Um, is it a question of, you know, it, it just comes down to risk? And people say, you know what, I'll accept the risk. I don't know what it is, but I can tell you that my biggest continued fear is we're plugging everything in. And we're still not doing what we should be doing to protect that infrastructure. So we're kind of shooting ourselves in the foot. And we know we're shooting ourselves in the foot. And instead of stopping, we do it again. So that's kind of my fear.
0: So the next question is, what is the differences in tactics or techniques between state actors versus criminals?
4: Sure. So having you know having been in the security field for, for many years, um, I think a lot of people expect there to be some kind of super secret methodology that, you know, a nation state will use versus, you know, a Joe Blow criminal versus an organized crime group. And the reality is, is there's really not much difference. The, the only the only real difference is what you're targeting, why you're targeting, and what kind of resources you can put behind that. And, you know, a good example is, well, the Chinese. The Chinese are stealing everything. Um, they've been stealing everything. Well, then they must be doing something super magical. Well, not at all. In fact, a lot of their things start with simple spear phishing emails. People click on the link, they open the attachment, boom, I'm in your system, I crawl around your system, I steal data, I exfiltrate data, and and I've got I've got it, I'm done. Okay, well guess what? That's exactly the same way that, that regular cyber criminals operate. You know, it's a phishing email, it's a link, it's a watering hole attack. User goes there, they click on the link, they open the attachment, they're compromised. Opens a hole, bad guy goes on your network, steals whatever the data is and exfiltrates it. The only real difference is what you're doing with the data. So if I'm um, organized crime or, or cyber criminal and my my target is, you know, PII, usernames, passwords, social security numbers, and I'm trying to monetize that. If I'm nation state, you know, I'll just keep using the Chinese since they're most most um, the most noisy and, and egregious about it. Um, but, you know, they're stealing all this intellectual property for over the years. They are using it. They're monetizing in a different way. They're monetizing in the sense that they're saving money on research and development. They're building up their infrastructure. And they're building up other capacity, whether it's military, you know, whether it's you know telecom, or whatever it is, they're building that up. So, in in that regard, they don't have to invest as much money. So they make money that way versus a criminal who just says, like, "I'm going to sell a bunch of stolen credit cards and I'm going to make what I make and and that's it." But the, but again, the TTPs they're not that much different, especially considering. That whether you're government or private sector, you chances are you're using commercial software. It's Windows. It's you know it's regular switches and routers. It's regular you know SQL databases. So th- that doesn't change. Therefore, the attacks don't have to change and be that different.
0: So as you were saying, you've been in the secure- security community for many years, and obviously there's been large breaches such as OPM, Equifax, and Target. So in regard to that, what exactly are they taking, and like how is information of this sort
4: stolen? So great question, um, and this kind of goes back to everything I've been saying. You have these different entities, you know, OPM's government entity, you know, Equifax private private sector, but they have data. They live, in, they live and die by data. OPM, it's all the government employee data. Equifax, it's all your financial data. That's that's the keys, you know. That's that's their treasure chest, but yet it's able to be stolen. Different actors, different motivations. Again, depending on what you read, OPM, nation state, Equifax may or may not have been nation state. Target uh, criminals. So, how do they get it? What's well, kind of like I said? It's the same thing. It's a, a regular vulnerability. I ex- exploit the vulnerability. I get on your network. I lateral around your network. I get the data. It's it's not different. How do they get it? Because it goes back to those companies. Were they doing? You know basic IT practices. Well, OPM, if you read the reporting, was was woefully under underprepared for any kind of cyber effort. They were, they were not secure. Um, that, you know the ag- adversary was able to get on the network. And again, depending on what reports you read, for as long as a year. So how you know can you how can you have somebody on your network for a year and not know about it? That that's IT. But that's that's an IT issue. That's an infrastructure issue. Same with Equifax. Equifax. You know. Reporting says they got in through the front door, so you have a known vulnerability on your web server. You make a risk decision. You, you don't patch right away. Bad guy exploits it. They're on your network. They get the data. This isn't something magical. It's something that could have been prevented. That's an IT best practice. Same with Target. You know They, they got in through a third-party HVAC repair, so they get in through an HVAC, they get into the network. The network's flat. They're able to ladder around the network. You know, get different um, types of point of sale malware. You know, get the data and exfiltrate the data. So how do they do it? Again, it's this. This is this methodology has been around for twenty years. The question is, are were the victims putting themselves in the best position to a stop it? Which clearly they didn't. And okay, if you you don't stop it because sometimes you just can't. Sometimes the adversary is better than you. That's what you have zero day exploits. You know, it just it happens. Okay, but then they're in the position to find it. Okay, and if they're not in a position to find it and then they're crawling around the network, okay, you know that the crown jewel is the data. Are you protecting the data? Well, they got all of the data out. So then the real question is, what were they doing? Because someone was able to get into your network and steal the most prized possession, which was the data. So again, take that take it as you will.
0: And then my other question, obviously, we have Kelsey and Shannon here, and uh, you are the professor for our class. So since you work at RMU and Pitt, what are some best practices for students like us, if you have any along the way?
4: Uh, no, actually, it's a good question. I think a couple of things that I would tell you is, one, and, and I and you guys have heard me say this in class. Um, I'll use the Equifax breach as a good example. Uh, a lot of people think, I haven't, I haven't been victimized by cybercrime. Yes, you have. Because if you had a credit card or some kind of loan, chances are there was some kind of credit reporting, which means your data was in Equifax. Just because the bad guy has not monetized your information does not mean you have not been a victim. So, you know, Equifax, I'm just using them as an example. Um, Equifax had that where you can go out and get the credit monitoring. Like, better or worse, credit monitoring is something. So, okay, have that. Checking your credit reports, you should be doing that. Um, Then there's simple IT things. One, a lot of times what happens is, a lot, especially you know you guys and actually it doesn't matter people people are, are lazy and and they're going to use not just you guys but a lot of people and and so they're gonna use and you guys have heard me say this the same using the password for multiple accounts and you have no idea how many breaches there are all the time if it's not in the news doesn't mean it didn't happen so I would always tell everyone changing not using same password for any account use it for one account if that gets popped it doesn't impact anything else so changing you you know your passwords regularly. Backing up your own data. A lot of people kind of think, well, I'll sync with the cloud. Well, all right, that's that's one way to do it, sure. But I'm sure you might have something on your machine that you say that's not synced up. Maybe it's an old tax form. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a term paper. Maybe it's the paper that you have due for me. <laughs> which don't worry, we still have time. Um, so whatever it is, offline personal offline backups are not a bad idea. What is that for? Well, that's for ransomware attacks. You look at these companies that are they're forced to pay the ransom on ransomware tax, something like I've said, they haven't followed basic IT practices. Those basic IT practices aren't limited to companies. They also apply to you. Passwords, backups, um, monitoring your credit, all of that stuff that you should be doing. And and something really important, especially, you know, um, for students, you know, a lot of you are told, hey, go create a, a social media profile, a professional one. Okay, a personal social media, that's on you. I wouldn't do it because you know, my joke, it's like peeing in the pool. Once it's out there, it's out there. And that information is out there on you all the time. But on the, on the professional ones, like, you know, like a LinkedIn or something, I have a LinkedIn account. Fine. But I would tell you, don't put your life story out there. It always comes down to, would you walk up to someone like a, like a really creepy guy sitting on a park bench and tell him your life story? Probably not. But when you go on social media, you're you just might very well be doing that, whether it's personal information or whether you're thinking, hey, it's a professional website. Yeah, but pad but guys know that too. And so they too will create accounts and they too will read your information and you don't want that. So all of that, th- those are the things that I see most likely you're going to get burned with. You're either going to get some kind of infection on your computer and you're going to lose information, offline backups. Some account that you set up one time or you, used your, you know your Gmail or something. That's gonna get popped. You're not gonna know about it, but that's the same one that you use for your Netflix, your bank account, and your Gmail and your Amazon. Don't want the same password. Credit, uh, checking your credit by law, you're entitled to a free credit report, you should do that. Again, just because you haven't seen the results of a bad guy monetizing your information does not mean the information has not been monetized. So just be cognizant of that.
0: And then obviously we have Shannon and Kelsey here. Do you guys have any questions for Steve? Hi Steve, thank you for being here today. (laughs) Um, I wanted to follow up on something that you said earlier about the importance of public and private information sharing. Obviously, the Cybersecurity Information Sharing Act was designed to help facilitate that, but to date only a few um, companies have signed up to share their information with the government. How would you suggest that that relationship can be improved and maybe some incentives that would
2: encourage the private sector to um, increase that relationship with the government?
4: so i would i would I would first, there's two parts to that question. One is for for private sector to share with government. The private sector has to trust one that they can give it to the government, and and, and that the government's going to do the right thing with it. Two, private sector's do going to want to give it to the government. So the government's going to do something with it. So if I just give you information and I don't get anything back from it as a result, it's going to be it's going to be hard to, for for government to tell these. But hey, you should, you should share information with us. Well, why? I don't I don't get anything out of it. So to, to make that more effective, the government has to show a return on investment for private sector. Um, the flip side is, I, I think there's a little bit of a misnomer on when you say sharing with government. And I've, I'll give you a good example. You guys remember, we had a speaker here from IC3. So if 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 people report on IC3's website, hey, something bad happened to me, in a sense, they are sharing information with the government. And that is enabling the government then to either open up investigations or, or kind of, you know, um, create, uh, you know, different reporting, say this is trending, this is popular. So I I think people are looking for something more formal. Say, industry doesn't share that much with government. Yes and no. Um, I think there's more that goes on, but I would say the the formality under that act, um, again, it comes back to the first part. I've got to trust you if I give you this information. And more importantly, not only do I trust you, but you're going to do something with it and a result. I saw something
3: where it's like, Chegg, the Chegg uh, textbook rental place, um, I guess, had, like, a breach. Mm-hmm. And um, it, in the comments, they were like, how can I find out if I've been breached by this? And they're like, oh, go to I, I, com." And I was like, I almost commented and was like, shouldn't do that. Um, but, I mean, obviously me as one person reaching out to these people on Facebook isn't going to do much. <laughs> but, like, so I feel like... So the, you're the one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I feel like... Um, and overall just like people just kind of put like cyber and like it and like best practices like in the back of their mind i feel because i feel like it's something that's so complicated in a way for most people that they're just i don't really know how it works but i'm just gonna pretend it's not happening
4: right no that's, actually that's a very good point because what what the problem is people don't want to see they don't want to see i'm not part of the it team mm-hmm. i'm just a user it's like, mm-hmm. yeah but but you're the target at the end of the mm-hmm. day the it is just the enabler to target you um, with, with respect to how do I find out more, um, actually, funny question or funny thing you asked that because I was, um, for a while, I was working with a group called Cyber, Cyber Crime Support Network. It's actually a nonprofit and they're they're actually trying to train local, state locals, so that if something happens, like let's say, for example, you, you, you're at home and, you, and your computer gets hit with a ransomware. Like, what would you do if you were at home? You'd have no idea. And if you call your, no offense, you call your local you know, police, they're like, uh, what do you want me to do? So, okay, you report the IC3. That's a good thing. Now they know it happened, but, but you're missing the point. But what do I do? And that's what people don't know. Where do I go to learn about that? Um, Cybercrime Support Network, CSN, is actually a very good source because they're working with grants to try and train a lot of locals to get the word out to the population that says, okay, how do I know if I'm breached? Or what if I am breached? What do I do about it? What are the resources? It's impossible for people to know that because they don't do it for a living. You have a Facebook account. They have a Facebook account got, got compromised. Um, okay, but you don't realize that there's a bunch of ripple effects to that. But you have no idea because it's not what you do for a living. Um, so that's why I said CSN is a great resource um, to go out there and take a look because they're trying to get the word out. And, and almost like the old, back when, when the, um, you know, the old D.A.R.E. movement for, for drinking, driving, and drugs. Kind of the same principle that they're trying to get out and train folks so that then they can put the word out to the local populace and say, look, there are resources available. The truth of the matter is everything you need to know and what to do if you ever got breached is actually out there. Um, and every best practice you can take is actually out there. Just got to know where to get it. And so how do you get the word out? I, I, again, that's just word of mouth, um, advertising, um, different nonprofits. Like CSN is a good one. Um, you know, Learning about things like IC3. Um, it's government, IC3.gov. You know, They have a bunch of PSAs. So these folks want to know what to do. It's like somebody needs to know that those resources exist. And then when they ask that, you'll go there. And like everything else, that word will spread and slowly people will start to learn. I mean, if you look at the, um, if you look at the number of report, reporting into IC3 over the years, you can see how much it's, it's increased. Why? Because people learn about it. They say, well, I didn't know that it existed five years ago. Now they know it exists. So now they're going out there and as they are all going out there, they're reporting more, which is making the statistics better. Oh, you know, by the way, now that I'm out there, you have public service announcements. I can read all about these scams and I can learn all about it. And I can learn about best practices. Um, and then, of course, the government does have information sharing groups like uh, I just use one Infogard. It's a good example. Um, you know, you can join it, and you get these public service announcements uh, from the government that say do's and don'ts, watch this, watch that, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, so the resources are out there. The, the real question is, how do you get the word out to people? And that's just time, and you know, just like it's like spreading. Just people just got to keep doing it, and you tell somebody, and then they tell somebody, and they tell somebody. And hopefully, hopefully get better at it.
0: I think why well, I- the last question I have is obviously, you've seen like the cyber world 10 years ago, currently in 2019. What is the hope, or where do we see it 10 years from now?
4: Um, Steve's opinion is the hope is that we either come to some kind of, um, you know, a universal, universally agreed upon that says, look, you're not allowed to plug anything into the internet unless you meet these criteria. And if you do plug in anything in, and and you and you get breached because you didn't want to do the basics. Because again, I don't care who you are, and I don't care how much money you put into it, how much effort. Look, anybody can be breached. You just you can't avoid it. But the question is, is at least make it hard for the bad guys. And are you doing everything in your power to make it hard for the bad guys? So I think until you have accountability, it says, look, you're not doing what the the minimum that you should be doing, you're never gonna get better because money is going is gonna win out every day and people are gonna keep pushing stuff out there. I hope that, in Steve's opinion, and a lot of people probably would not like this, but I kind of like something like a GDPR for the U.S. that says, look, company XYZ, if you're going to host the data of U.S. citizens, then you are going to do things to protect it and minimize the probability that it's going to get breached. And if you do all that and you still get breached, okay, we'll have reporting mechanisms in place that says, okay, if you think you've been breached, you have to report that. So until we get something like that, I just don't think it's going to get better. And technologies, it's not like we're plugging less stuff and we're plugging more stuff. No, by the way, and I keep throwing this out, we haven't even rolled on IPv6 yet. So when you get a whole new batch of stuff to plug in, an whole new IP um, addressing scheme, you know, that we're, we're just not prepared for. So it, it could it could go, it could get better if, you know, industry and or government says, okay, enough, we're going to put some things in place or it's going to stay the same or get worse otherwise
0: last questions or wrap this up so thank you steve for your time we really appreciate it and then that ends our podcast for today and
2: tune in next month